from the Gospel of Mark, beginning in chapter 12, verse 18. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married, and when he died, left no children. And the second married her and died, leaving no children. And the third, likewise. None of the seven left children. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the story about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, I would speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, once again, it is uh, a privilege and an honor uh, to be with you for this Lenten preaching series in this uh, sort of artificial, virtual way, which uh, many of us are, are grieving, but also giving thanks for at the same time. It's a deep sadness to, be not, to me not to be with you in person uh, at the Advent, a church that, as you know, I love very much. Uh, but here we are, uh, trying to hear the word of the Lord in spite of uh, the chaos all around us. So it's, it's really a joy to be with you uh, again in this way. Death is always in the headlines, obviously, in one form or another, but now it seems it is all <laughs> that is in the headlines. Just before I sat down to write this sermon, I, I decided I would visit four or five prominent news outlets, more or less at random. The virus death toll was the leading story at every one of them. And at one of the sites, I'm not kidding, virtually every headline on the main page was somehow about death and dying. Of course, I know that so many of you face your own mortality courageously each day, those of you who are dealing with debilitating, life-threatening uh, conditions, but it seems that all of us now are pondering death in a way that I can't remember doing before in my lifetime. In the midst of life, we are in death, as the prayer book says. Friends, the Christian hope in the face of so much death is the same hope that it's always been. And although we will not be gathering together on Easter Sunday to celebrate that hope together, we will still be celebrating. The Lord is risen from the dead, and because of that, we know that we will rise too. Death will not be the end of us. We will live together on the other side of death. On Tuesday, today of Holy Week, after his demonstration in the temple, Jesus is approached by some religious leaders who don't believe that. The Sadducees know that Jesus does believe in the resurrection, and sort of like candid camera pranksters, they want to humiliate him in public by drawing him into a debate that they know he can't win. 
They want to expose how absurd it is for thoughtful, educated, politically savvy people to believe in a bodily life after death. And so they pose a scenario which they think will show the ridiculousness of it. Suppose, they say to Jesus, that a husband dies, leaving his wife without children. The man's brother then marries the widow, and he ends up dying too. And this happens five to five more of the man's brothers. And then, after enduring the loss of seven husbands and still having no children, the woman herself dies. At that point, the Sadducees spring the trap. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For the seven had married her. They think that they've stumped him. If Jesus says none of them, then isn't he, in effect, denying the doctrine of the bodily res resurrection by cutting the link between this present bodily life and the next? If we aren't raised as the same people we are now, then we won't really be raised, will we? But, on the other hand, if Jesus says that she remains married to all of them, then he exposes the doctrine of the resurrection to ridicule. Is everything that was true about our earthly lives somehow going to be reinstated in the resurrection? If so, then surely that demonstrates just how implausible and naive the doctrine of the resurrection really is. But Jesus evades the trap by denying, I think, the key assumption that the Sadducees make and that they seem to think Jesus must share with them. The Sadducees seem to have a picture of resurrection in their minds that involves taking up our old bodily life just as before. Hence the reason why they can't imagine believing that doctrine. It's silly. But according to Jesus, the resurrection means a transformation of our present bodily existence. The Apostle Paul would later compare our present bodies to a seed awaiting its transformation into a great tree. Paul says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I think that's what Jesus is indicating when he says that in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, if you try to extrapolate from our present life to what our risen life will be like, that is not straightforward. We believe that we will still be ourselves. Jesus still has the, the nail marks on his wrists in his resurrection body, but also... What we will be has not yet been revealed. I've always loved C.S. Lewis's uh, humorous way of trying to explain the disconnect between our present limited perspective and the resurrection and what it will actually be like. You may remember that, that passage in his book Miracles when Lewis says, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you ate chocolate at the same time. On receiving the answer, no, the, the little boy might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. 
In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers and their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We, Lewis says, are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not yet know, except in glimpses, the other things which in heaven will leave no room for it. Hence, where fullness awaits us, we anticipate fasting. I love that. We are awaiting a future transformation of our bodies that will represent, as Lewis says, a fullness, a satisfaction of our truest longings that will eclipse the time-bound longings whose satisfaction we spend so much of our life chasing. But after having made that point, Jesus turns to the real issue at hand. Why should he believe there is a resurrection? Why should he believe in new bodily life after death? And his answer has everything to do with God, with who God is. Have you not read, he says to the Sadducees, in the book of Moses, in the story about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, over the years, readers of Mark's gospel have often wondered, why did Jesus quote that verse? Why didn't he quote a clearer Old Testament proof text? For the doctrine of the resurrection. He, he, for instance, he could, have, he could have quoted this from Isaiah. Your dead shall live, their corpses shall rise. O dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Instead of that, Jesus quotes a passage that isn't so obviously about the future resurrection, but about the new life that the dead have with God right now. Thinking about the relationship between time and eternity is, of course, as you know, a guaranteed way to get a headache fast. But Jesus here seems to point us in that direction, not simply to who God will be for his people in the future, but to who God is now. He insists that God is presently the God of the dead, who are at this moment alive to God because of the hope of the resurrection. God, Jesus says, will one day raise his people. More than that, God has made the dead to live already. Those who have died, here I'm quoting from Joel Marcus's wonderful commentary on Mark, those who have died have not been lost, but are hidden from the living by the thinnest and most permeable of membranes. In the midst of life, we are in death, says the prayer book. Yes, and also in the midst of death, we have the hope of eternal life because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And God will prove that in five days time. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.